The Two Mats is brought to you by the New European. If you like the contents of this podcast, The Two Mats, if you're a regular listener, you're going to love The New European. And I've got a very special subscription offer for you for just a pound a week or two pounds a week if you want the newspaper. And that's the price of a bottle of water, folks, a small bottle of water. You can get The New European delivered to your door every week and you'll be supporting great independent journalism and you'll be kicking back against the corrosive nationalism that helped bring Brexit to Britain's shores. You'll also get a £25 voucher to spend at The New European shop and you can get a great book we've just published on the Battle of Orgreave or you can get a t-shirt or you can get a mug or you can get a great bollocks to Brexit passport cover. So do the right thing please, support this podcast and also support The New European. Go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. Hello snowflakes and welcome back to the New European Podcast. What are the four nicest words in the world? Not Brexit has been cancelled, it's Richard Porritt is away. So you're stuck with me. It's Steve Anglesey and I'm here with Jerry Scott. Hello. And I'm here with Mia Jankovic. Hello. Uh, And we're going to talk about all the amazingly exciting developments in Brexit this week, which has basically just been Dominic Cummings going... All you Remainers, oh, I've, I've done it, I've already beaten you, and oh, let's just go away and shut up. Um, the excitement is is about uh, the prospects of Parliament returning and there being uh, some kind of move against Boris Johnson, some kind of move against the Conservatives, some kind of move against a no-deal Brexit. Um, and we thought we would start by talking about the prospect of a government of national unity, um, which is, is quite exciting. What, what do we understand? Uh, let's go to you, Jerry, first. What do we understand by a, a, a government of national unity? Some kind of rainbow coalition. <laughs> yeah. So it's usually in times of national emergency, isn't it? Which Is this a national emergency? Look, really? I don't think it's quite that level. Well, it is. Well... <laughs> Sure, but it's not like a war, whatever the uh, various um, newspapers would have you believe. Yes, um, it's a war in Dominic Cummings' big head, I it would is. say. It is. It's, it's a massive constitutional crisis, I'd say, if not a uh, military one. Yes, not yet. We'll get there. But we're, hope, we're fingers crossed, we're hoping for for uh, the military to be uh, maintained. Um, so a government of national unity, well, 
let's see how we would get to a government of national unity first. Um, to get to the speculation, all the speculation is that at some point Parliament will return. Maybe you know, maybe it will be returned on time on September the third. Maybe, as I believe Jerry will be discussing uh, later on with um, with Clive Lewis, the the Labour MP. It even Parliament will even be recalled before that. But anyway, when Parliament gets back, what is what's going to what are going to be the steps to this government of national unity? Oh God, this is horrible. This is like my public affairs exam or something. Yes, it is. Uh, I'm so going to be marking this later <laughs> on, Mia. So. So what this takes is tabling a motion of no confidence in the government, which has uh, got some likelihood of succeeding because Boris Johnson has such a slim majority. Um, I think that's a majority of one, although I've seen some pundits kind of like quibble at that and say maybe it's two or three. Yep. Um, but of course that could change also if Philip, Philip Lee. Lee is on yes. the edge of defecting, isn't he, to the Lib Dems, so we could soon have no majority. Sorry that to interrupt. No, that would be, uh, that would be fun. Um, and in that process, all kind of things happen. I mean, it's really hard to sort of map what happens. To me, I picture it like, you know that moment in um, in the Crystal Maze when all those bits of silver and gold paper go up in the <laughs> yes. air and they start snatching? And they're rubbish at it, aren't they? <laughs> really they never catch it. any. I don't know, maybe that, that's how we should decide our government. But, um, <laughs> you know, little names on slips of uh, gold paper. <laughs> um, so then at that, at that point, um, we see who can try and get a majority. Um, and then and then what Labour hope to do is um, is to produce a temporary government yes so um, if Boris Johnson lost then Labour would then have 14 days in which to, in a sort of this is exciting now isn't it the clock yeah. is running well it would be but they're not going to um, <laughs> they're not going to delay article 50 they've said Right, okay. Um, which is exactly what all of the kind of Remain camp would like. Yes. Um, instead, they would, uh, they would um, try to call a general election or possibly a second referendum. I think more likely Corbyn wants a general election. Right. Um, and then all the machinations go from there. Right, okay. So, a government of national unity then, Labour are, are, are very cold on this idea... Uh, it, well, has, labor, labor, labor it has to be said. They, so they would try and form their own government, and everybody and Jeremy Corbyn would try and um, and, and would try and um, hold a majority, uh, I guess, in, in order to in order to do what? Just to call a general election, or yes? Well, I mean, I think it's partly you've got to have the distinction between a government of national unity with lots of different voices in it, yes, and Labour supported by lots of different voices. And the difference is, of course, the national unity prime minister isn't really someone who intends to sit in that chair for very long. Yes. Um, which is ironic, given that Jeremy Corbyn initially set himself up as that kind of candidate when he first stood for leadership. Yes. Um, but in this case, it would be sort of Labour plus some supporters, but with Labour having all the say. Yes. It doesn't seem very fair, and I can see why the Remainers would turn that down. It doesn't seem very likely, does it? Um, so, I mean, things things could change. I, I, you know, why, why are we ruling... I mean, this all of this is... is come to the fore the idea of a vote of no confidence the idea that there might even have to be a, a government of national unity if Jeremy Corbyn can't form a, uh, a, a government if there is a vote of no confidence and Boris Johnson loses this has all come about Jerry, because of things that 
Dominic Cummings and Jacob Rees-Mogg have said? What what kind of things have they have they said? Sure. So I think the first first kind of thing to say is that when we're talking about Labour and Corbyn, there Corbyn wouldn't be able to lead any government of. Uh, any any um, government of national unity no. because he can't even get the full support of his own party no, to be leader of his own party you know he's had people defect um, and there are various other people that have have a similar problem and to take office this government would also need the support of at least three Tory MPs yes um, if you know all the groupings kind of stay the same that's already a struggle you know you've got Dominic Grieve you've got Ken Clark and some pro-European um, Tories who have kind of said they'd never vote for no confidence in their own government. Mm. Even then, you've got people like Ian Austin and Kate Hoey who you'd have to have on board as well. Yeah, uh, it's so likely they'd need kind of five people to come across. But the reason we're talking about all this is, you know, that there really could be a vote of no confidence. Jacob Rees-Mogg, like you say, has said that the government's not going to take any new legislation, which yes. would force an extension um, to Article 50. And realistically, it's either that or revoking yes. Article 50 that are the only real options here. Um, and then Dominic Cummings has said that if Boris was to lose a no-confidence vote, then he could simply just call an election after yeah. Halloween. So Exactly. Then Parliament, then, and then Parliament would all, everyone would go away. Yep. They would go back to their constituencies and prepare for uh, no deal and for government, as um, as the as David still once nearly said. And um, and then we would just sort of go out without a um, you know without any sort of fuss at all, parliamentary fuss at all. Um, now, various people disagree that this could happen. Among them, Dominic Grieve. <laughs> what's what, what's Dominic Grieve had to say about this this week, Mia? Well, a lot of people have disagreed about this possibility of just crashing out while the while the, ele- while the yes. general election campaigning is uh, is going on. Um, to, rather than Dominic Grieve, I mean, um, Jeremy Corbyn has written to the cabinet secretary. A strongly worded letter. It is a strong. How can this letter. fail to impress? <laughs> um, yeah, I know. I mean, the things, the things, the sort of big guns he pulls out in these situations are quite impressive, aren't they? Yeah. Um, the letter asks him to disgruntled of uh, Islington. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> asks him to acknowledge that um, allowing something like a No Deal Brexit to happen during Perda, the yeah. Pro, the period of election campaigning would be would be unconstitutional yes um there's there's many objections to this um in mainly on the grounds that this well first of all explaining what perda is perda's um making any kind of policy changes that the incoming government might disagree with or want to change during an election period yes perda stops that from happening essentially you kind of have to leave things at the status quo as they yes. are so doing things like leaving the eu without a deal would be kind of probably be classed as that it except. seems quite major doesn't it mm-hmm. yeah except except it's not a policy change it's no. um it's it would be the rolling out of existing government policy and in fact it's our default position yeah, exactly. I mean, this this was one idea, wasn't it, that civil servants can't implement a major policy change during an election campaign, but that's it. It's, that's some catch, that catch-22. Um, it isn't a major policy change. We're, we're doing this anyway. Um, and obviously, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as the new leader of the, the House, uh, uh, his position is quite clear. The only way that we can... Um, 
do anything about this is um, to force Boris Johnson to accept an extension or to revoke Article 50, and neither of those things seem very likely to happen. What about John Burko, who has been very quiet? What do you think he could possibly come up with, Jerry? Quiet, John Burko. I know. What a, what a surprise for us all. Um, so he could try and disrupt things, couldn't he? There is yes. technically legislative time for things to happen yes you know you mentioned and um listeners will hear in my chat with clive lewis yes um him say that he thinks that mps could be recalled Mm -hmm. you know that they could be recalled over conference season i'm going to conferences if there are no mps there it's going to be a bit weird isn't it yeah um but that really the only important thing you know look back at that cooper's bill to request an extension to article yes it proves that things can happen quickly that was passed in i think three days yep um whereas this uh, any new kind of bill would take maybe six weeks but yeah this isn't out of the realms of possibility and burko could use the conventions and parliamentary tricks available to him to allow that to happen yes whether he will or not it's obviously a different matter yeah I just find it so unlikely, the idea that Tory MPs of any stripe, even Kenneth Clark would vote to... It's Kenneth Clark who voted for Article 50, by the way, didn't Mm -hmm. he, in the first place, would vote to revoke Article 50. And that really does seem to bring in this this absurd thing uh, which is being uh, sort of uh, propagated now um, of the people's election against the people against the politicians yeah, election yeah, yeah, the people's boris and you know as while, uh, the daily telegraph are now calling him while we're talking about elections before we get off it boris and his team in number 10 can say as much as they want that they're not gearing up for a general election that's still their official line mm. but all the mps think they're gearing up for an election the mps i speak to day to day tell me that they're ready you know, they're getting ready to get out there on the doorstep again. And just look at the people he's surrounding himself with. This week he hired um, Linton Crosby's old guy, um, Isaac Levido, yep. as his director of politics and campaigning. Um, and he's going to take control of all the election planning. He's reporting to Dominic Cummings. But, you know, I mean, why is he bringing those people who are experts in electioneering in if he's not gearing up for one? Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it does seem like we are heading for a general election. Is that your feeling, Mia? Um, I think inevitably, yes. Um, I think Boris Johnson would like one definitely after we've left the EU. Yes. Um, I think that would be much more comfortable. Um, mm. And I think one really interesting question is, is just how, you know, what would be the best timing for him to stay in power afterwards? You yes. Know, when, when we've just crashed out of the EU and when there's lorries all over Dover or when um, sort of three, six weeks down the line when we're all starving and there's no food on the shelves. Yes, yes. Um, That's another question, I think. Yes, I'm I'm personally wondering whether he might call a general election for just after we've the first week of november when things are not quite have not quite mm. completely broken down everyone's still of, waving their flags yes yeah. Yeah, it's a weird post-coital relief about it all possibly that is a, what, a, <laughs> what, 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 what an image that, that really is uh so the key dates now are um, well, the key date for, for everybody to remember who's listening to this podcast is that there isn't. There's a new European 
out right now, a summer special. It's got Boris Johnson on a deck chair on the front and Jeremy Corbyn on an also a, a deck chair. It says pair of uh, pair of canutes, I think it says, which um, is probably a couple of letters um, uh, over. And uh, but then there's no print edition of the New European next week. There will be a podcast, mind you. Then Parliament is supposed to come back on Tuesday, September the third. It's nice that they've had a Monday off as well, isn't it? Just to have the Monday off just to think about things. It's training day, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. It's an insect day. Yeah, yeah. an insect day, as, uh, as 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 they're known, aren't they? And then Parliament comes back. What 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 things could happen on Tuesday, September the third, when Parliament returns? What are we expecting to happen? So we already spoke about Philip Lee. Yeah, he could kind of try and say, Do you yes. know about it? I'm off to the Lib Dems and put everything up in the air his name is a sort of portmanteau of two types of soft cheese <laughs> philadelphia and dairy lee oh he could uh, do some kind of advertising he could do he could be the face of well we you know we import an awful lot of our cheese and it is a disgrace so well yeah no more <laughs> soft cheese factories will be reopened just a shout out to liz truss <laughs> yes indeed we cannot go oh man liz truss oh man she's oh, in man. america this week oh well dear oh dear back to parliament yes please please what well, do you think how likely is it that jeremy corbyn is going to call for this vote of no confidence then as soon as they're back i don't think he's going to do it what do you think me don't think no oh Oh right. Um, I would assume that he would he would do it. Why don't you think so? I don't think that he's going to do it because he is not in any position to get what Labour want and for it to be a Labour government. Okay. I don't think he's going to risk it at the moment. Okay. Does he not need an opposition day to be able to put that forward? Hasn't he been fiddling? Hasn't have people been fiddling with the um, with the parliamentary return times in order to make it yes. give us enough time for that? I actually well, don't know if that's what's needed or not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Can, uh, can you call for a vote with no confidence at any time? Can I just? Can you just go in there Should now? Just call for one now. I think the leader of the I've opposition done a few can. Times myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Here at the offices. In the yes, I've got no confidence in the. I think. The I guess le- I just feel like there's been so many opportunities for Jeremy Corbyn to call a vote of no confidence. Not obviously in this government, but in Theresa May's government, and he chickens out so many times. Yes. That I feel, I feel a bit. It's a bit boy, boy who cried wolf. Um, and I don't want to say I'll believe it until I see it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of course, if he doesn't do it, then the next thing on the parliamentary calendar is the week after, the Tuesday after, they're all supposed to go away again. Yeah. <laughs> so they've been back for five, well, four days, weren't it? Because they have Fridays off anyway. Yep. Back to their constituencies where they all work extremely hard. Oh, so three days, yeah. Um, and then the, then the, I guess they would come back on then on the Monday and mm-hmm. and then... Oh, they're not going to have time to do anything more than just tidy up their inboxes, really, aren't they? Well, that's it, basically, yeah. Okay, yeah. Nice. Um, and then they, they're supposed to break up for the conferences. So the suggestion <laughs> is that if they didn't call for a vote of no confidence, they might try... I guess they have somebody has to put down a, a motion, don't they, saying, shall we all go off for conference now? And yep. they'll go, aye and no. Mm. But the, the idea is that they might try and amend that motion and then try and sit all the way through the conference season, yep. as, as, as Jerry um, said before. And then they would have time. There would well, be an opposition day. Then, <laughs> That'd be great. Well, there'd be a lot of empty rooms in Manchester, Brighton, and wherever <laughs> the other conferences are. Where are the other? Where are the conferences this year? Manchester and Brighton is right. Um, I'm not sure where Lib Dem is, to be honest. Where it's a damning it? indictment, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're the coming force they in are. British politics. They are. 
Where do we imagine it might be? What, Lib Dem? Yeah. Oh, somewhere like Plymouth. Plymouth, yeah. Bournemouth. Birmingham, maybe. Birmingham. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it could be somewhere, you know, it could be like somewhere vaguely hipster, like the northern quarter <laughs> of Manchester. Or in my head telling me it's Plymouth. If I've got that right, I'm going to be over the moon. That would be good. Uh, and then, they wouldn't come back until October the 8th. And then there's only three and a half weeks of till Halloween till we go <laughs> it's incredible it's almost like someone's you know really wants us to go without having any kind of parliamentary say isn't it it, it does it does seem that way who <laughs> could who could be so Machiavellian who would think that way um Bournemouth it is in Bournemouth, Bournemouth. there you go there I was are. right <laughs> uh so Zoe Williams by the way mm. uh who's a fine writer and writes for the New European uh, says in the print edition of the New European that she has heard on the grapevine that there will be a general election on October the 14th. I can't quite see how that happens, personally. Mm. But no. if you if it does happen, then Zoe Williams said it first. You heard it here first. You heard it here first. Mm. Uh, do you think the papers have treated Dominic Cummings fairly or unfairly so far, Mia? Hmm, that's a difficult one. Um, it's he's just such a funny figure, isn't he? I think he's been a fantastic, um, fantastic character to focus on. I think. Yeah. Um, he's such a Bond villain, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that slightly oversized head, that enormous brain that everyone keeps talking about. Um, that sort of angry, laser-eyed look. He looks furious, doesn't he? All the time. Yeah. Um, really he's got, furious. He's got a bit of a Silicon Valley look going on at the moment as well. He's wearing like oh, just this plain T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> plain T-shirts. He's, I like the. You know, I don't. Well, I don't like very much about Dominic Cummings. In fact, I don't like anything about Dominic Cummings. But I have to admire the brazen his his total his brazen vote leave tote bag <laughs> it's like i was in charge of this i lied <laughs> well, i lied and now i'm going in here every day in the it's yeah, yeah. it's no, very I mean, much like wearing a gary glitter tote carrying a gary <laughs> glitter tote bag around or something like that i'm guilty guilty as charged and i just don't care <laughs> kind of attitude of kind of total black and white we're leaving i don't give a anything yeah um you know that that you know that there's that it's completely there's no nuances there's no kind of particular regard for um precedent or constitutional constitutional no. authority or anything like this i think that really appeals to you know 52 percent of the population and maybe more um largely because i think um for, you know, to, without wanting to stereotype too much, you know, leavers see this as a very simple equation. We voted to leave. Yes. Why are they? Why is it taking us three years to get out? Why are all these sort of bewigged uh, legal types looking over codicils in, in constitutions about how they can stop us leaving? Yes. And he just tramples over all of that. Um, to them, that's the responsible choice. That's the that's the respect for you know democracy choice, which is odd when you actually realise that he's sort of trampling on every every uh, sort of norm of parliamentary authority there is. Yeah. I mean, the, um, let's be clear about this. The reason that we're not leaving is because they came up with a method by which we would leave and, and a deal, and the hard right of the Conservative Party refused to sign off on it yeah. because because they want us all to jump off a cliff more. together. <laughs> That's the reason. Not, nothing to do with me, is it? Or, or you, or us little Ramonas, or everyone who's listening to this lovely podcast. It's and not, it's it's not our doing. It's uh, you know, a matter of parliamentary process and democracy, you know, holding it all up. 
Well, um, Dominic so Cummings. So you just need Dominic Cummings with a big, you know, ballistic missile just to chuck us out. He's going to do something um, about that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, have the ch- newspapers treated him fairly? I couldn't tell you. No. But he's certainly provided an awful lot of talking points. No. I mean, he's only been in there two weeks. I don't I think know. even our esteemed editor-at-large, Alistair Campbell, wasn't in front of the cameras within uh, no. within two weeks. He hadn't become it? the story in the first no. two weeks, had he? Though he did later on become the story. Well, yes. Uh, <laughs> and then left saying, when you become the story, you have to leave. So maybe Dominic Cummings should take uh, an ex- a leaf out of Alistair's book and just uh, a leaf, uh, as they say. Um, now... Um, before we move on to the happy um, topic of food shortages, uh, the Brexit Party have announced loads of candidates this week. I've written a big piece about this in the New European Print Edition, which I would urge you to go and buy. Um, it's a summer special of the New European Print Edition. There's loads of fun stuff in it. Um, and... Um, they, you know, look, when the UKIP candidate list came out, you could basically mix and match against their social media histories and they were, you mm. know, largely fruitcakes. Here's a racist, Here's and here's a man who believes in interplanetary um, <laughs> space travel and uh, all of this will, will be, you know, we, we need to invest in this. And then we could mine asteroids and stuff like that. Um, so that was the UK, that's what the UKIP candidate list used to look like, and it was fairly easy. I've got to say, when you, went, you go down this list of, it's a hundred now, but I think I looked at about sixty for this piece. Um, a lot of social media histories have been cleansed. Funny that you can you yes. can see a lot of people have got brand new social media <laughs> channels. I don't know whether they shut their old ones down. A lot of people um, have uh, have uh, deleted stuff. Um, it's fair to say that they don't look uh, as much like you kippers as the old you kippers. There are. Uh, there are LGBTQ plus candidates. There are uh, seven or eight in the first um, uh, the first tranche that I wrote about of BAME candidates. There are female candidates. Mm. There are even female candidates. Oh my God, where's it going to end? Um, the, it was great. The Axel Thill, who is a, a German guy, who's their prospective party candidate in, in uh, Asia and Walton, he tweeted um, a picture of the first 50 candidates, and he wrote, As a German native, I am proud to be part of this celebration of diversity. It is not how narrow-minded right-wing extremists look. And the accompanying graphic um, was of Axel and 49 of his colleagues, 36 of whom were middle-aged mi- white men. Oh, yeah, and two true. more were young, younger white men. Uh, a lot of baldness in there. But... Um, you could go uh, we'll go through. I can go through the list. Uh, you can go through the list and, and, and see who some, meet some of these people in the New Europeans. I won't go on about them, um, but surely the effect of the Brexit Party on the Conservatives after a general election is is going to be what, Mia? What do you how, what do you think? It, I, I don't have any major um, majorly original opinions here. I just feel like they're only going to pull the Brexit, the pull the Conservatives to the right. Um, yes. and keep exerting their pressure. I think, um, yeah, I think that's the way it will go. 
And do you think that they are the Conservatives going to be able to do something between now and a, a vote taking place that will neutralise all these people and put them back in their box? Or do you think that they will just be out there anyway? Nope, I think it's too late. Um, I think, I think it's too it. late. Um, I will just say something on social media, though. The Brexit Party are wise to this now because we're all familiar with their founder, Catherine Blakelock. Yes. Um, who stood down from the party um, after she, after some of her anti-Islam yes. tweets were kind of unearthed and she couldn't really defend them. She's been back in the news this week for saying that someone told her that oh, people yeah. were buying operations in Pakistan and then coming out yes, to right. have them at Slough General Hospital. She was then outed mm. um, by me as one of the people yeah. actually yeah. as um, Slough General, it doesn't exist. It's not a hospital that exists. Right. Um, but apart from that... But apart from that, it all stands up. Someone told her the hospital doesn't exist. Like yeah. <laughs> um, but the point is, is that the Brexit Party, when approached, said, you know, this is one of the reasons that she was asked to leave. They're wise to this now. They're wise to the fact that their candidates have histories which will land them in trouble. So I'm really not surprised that they've got new Twitter accounts and, and things like that. But these things do always come out in the wash. Um, but back to the Tories, yeah, I think it's it's just it's too late for them. I think if we had a general election early November, the Brexit Party would still get a good handful of seats. Yes, I think they probably will. Or you know, if and if not, they will damage the uh, the Tories. Um, and, yeah, hopefully they'll split the vote a little bit. That's uh, that's why I love the Brexit Party so much. Yeah, <laughs> right now. yeah, but, forward um, with the Brexit Party. Uh, this talk of you know sort of cleansing the social media profiles yep. and, and sort of shaping things up. I mean, it's almost been over-talked about the kind of slick design and the um, sort of the much more social media-friendly appearance the party has. Yes. And um, I, that's almost been, the, you know, the subject of a piss take in the last week, a piece on the, on the Digital New European showing, um, you know, these little sort of Twitter cards that yeah. they put yeah. up with each of the candidates and it sort of has a really cool black and white photo and a uh, name of the candidate and where they're standing and how many percent voted for leave. This was really quickly taken up by people sort of um, using, you know, Swiss Tony or uh, yep. Frank Caramel <laughs> or Darth, Darth Vader. Darth Vader was good. That's a good one. Darth Vader um, was good. So where's Darth Vader standing? <laughs> Tatooine or somewhere like that, um, I think. Actually, Death Star Hampton, it says. Uh, Death Star Hampton. Place. Um, 100% Brexit vote there. Leave, leave vote. So like mature adults, obviously, we, we did an article about it. Yeah. Um, so that was fun, but even you know, even still, you know, this Axel Thill quote you have here of this isn't this is not how narrow-minded right-wing extremists look and talk. Mm. I don't know. I find that a little bit. You know, when 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 we were pointing out how narrow-minded right-wing yeah. extremists look and talk, the Brexit Party or at least the UKIP at the time were very much saying, you know, very much rejecting that kind of logic yes. of saying, you know, most people would say, you know, if it walks like a duck and speaks like a duck, yeah, then yeah. it's duck. But that logic was completely rejected at the time. So suddenly they've got this kind of clean outer yes. outer appearance, which I think is quite hypocritical. It's protesting too much, I think, by Axel uh, Thiel. On, on that, on that quick, um, I don't want to big up my uh, Clive Lewis interview no, for no. a third time. Which we're going to be listening to in a minute. But he makes a really good point in that, in that when democracies fail, it's not always 
um, I think the word, term he uses uh, is um, mustachioed men on the TV, yeah, like clad in you know khaki, telling you that democracy is over. Right. I was it's, thinking you meant Boise from Only Fools and Horses for a minute. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah, as well. Yeah. To me, if, if Boise's telling me democracy is over, <laughs> then uh, it really is. Marlene, <laughs> democracy is over. Um, but you know, it, just because it's not the way that you would imagine it doesn't mm. mean that it isn't so. No, this is very true. Very, very true. Uh, and to the point um, where um, they're, they're not, um, you know, the Brexit party are protesting too much. I really love the quote from Deanne Clark, uh, who is standing in Nuneaton, mm-hmm. who said, who says, uh, she's standing for the Brexit party in Nuneaton, and she says, Labour are now so far to the left that to them, the centrist Brexit party are labelled as right wing. <laughs> Centrist <laughs> Brexit Party. Oh my goodness! I mean, who would who would call the Brexit Party right wing? Well, yeah. I know, yeah. What the centrists of the Brexit Party? I think they're almost centre left in the Brexit Party. <laughs> I think so, there are loads of centrist dads that vote for the Brexit yeah, Party. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, we are going to hear your interview with Clive Lewis in a minute, which yep. which I'm sure will be a fine thing. Um, and um, but first, Mia, food food shortages. Yeah, well, um, I just wanted to uh, make sure you're all stockpiling. Yes. Um, it'd be good to know what you are stockpiling. Um, it might be a good advertising opportunity, you know. Paddy Power, uh, yeah. Paddy oh, Power are offering odds now, aren't they, on the on the th- the first things that will be stockpiled or that will be rationed, beef sort of stuff yeah. like that avocados i think is one there was something in um, an american paper i don't can't remember if it's the new york times or washington post that um said britain's stockpiling because some people are buying 200 tea bags like, no that's a weekly shop that is project fear um but project fear must be getting you know all the engines running pretty strongly because there's been several um people speaking out this week or worryingly senior in their in their expertise of on sort of food supplies the minor matter of food supplies yes and what, whether we'll be able to eat um because of course leaving crashing out without a deal um we leave at the worst possible time of the year yes um so the sort of fresh food supplies all that homegrown stuff we're supposed to be eating ourselves will be kind of over Mm. We left with turnips. I think they grow those and sugar beet maybe. Yeah. Um, but warehousing. Mm, sugar for... beet. <laughs> You're just going to crunch on one. Just raw sugar beet. <laughs> That's going to be your pudding now. That is it. Yeah. Um, that is a bit, and all the warehousing that you might use for st- stockpiling food in general will be full for Christmas anyway. So, so traders are saying this oh, yes. is a bad thing. Um, <laughs> Um, so yes, yesterday on Newsnight, um, it was it was reported that um, forty five thousand cows could be culled in Northern Ireland. Yes, this is because lambs uh, are facing a culling as well, aren't they? Yeah, to the slaughter. Mm, yeah, to the slaughter. <laughs> They're, um, this is a very sinister laugh. Isn't it? <laughs> I quite like the idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm just laughing at myself. <laughs> Um, yes, so essentially tariffs would um, on the on the milk that has to be processed in Northern Ireland, in from Northern Ireland to the Republic of Ireland, about a third of the milk goes to the Republic of Ireland to be processed. Um, that would put about 15p on the pint, basically killing part of the industry. Whoa! Uh, so that's um, that's all. That's yeah. I don't know how many, how, what percentage of the number of cows in Northern Ireland it is, but it's a large number that would just have to go. Um, then the former Sainsbury's chief and the head of food, ex-head of food at M&S, Justin King, 
um, said that we'll have significant gaps on the shelves within 10 days of a no-deal Brexit. Great. Um, he, I think he, he was slightly unclear in the interview, but I think he meant fresh food. So, you yes. Know, we're good for tins of beans, maybe, or... Um, my favourite pasta and sauce sachets. <laughs> um, that's my stockpiling choice. That that means that that, that imagines that we've got a good fresh water supply going. Oh, oh, that's true. That's true. Basically, anything that you can get in a service station, which should be fine. For Ginsters us. pies and stuff like that yes. will be okay. Nothing um, wrong with Ginsters pie. Does it mean that? I mean, they've also said, haven't they, that even if the so food supply lines don't break down and we can still get food in the effect of panic buying means that supermarkets will be empty because as soon as supermarkets are restocked people will go oh my god this is happening mm. illogically like you know like when we like, like you know 10 years ago or so when we saw people desperately going to petrol stations even though petrol wasn't really going to run out yeah. mm. um, and it there wasn't you know blockades weren't really going to have an effect so you know well i mean i mean one person who's written an article about this is tim lang of the professor tim lang yeah. of the center for food policy i've not really known how to refer to him i've just been calling him a food professor food professor that's that his like good title, yeah he's a boffin it? isn't he yeah a boffin would be good yeah. um he food wants... boffin <laughs> That would be my job. Yeah, food <laughs> egghead. <laughs> but there won't be any eggs. Unfortunately, they've gone. Powdered eggs. He wrote an article in the in the Lancet, and he did a, he did acknowledge that um, the one of the reasons the government might be being keeping so coy and quiet on the matter of all this stuff um, might be because they don't want to cause panic buying. So he does acknowledge that. Right. But he also said that um, no deal could cause unprecedented in peacetime trouble for food supplies, and that government should possibly just drop its health advice. You know, the five a day fruit and veg. You know, can't have that now. Yeah. One a day. day. He didn't go quite as far as that, but he did say, look, you you can't follow your own health advice if it's going to be like this. No, just have a Halliborringe as as your main meal. (laughs) Halliborringe, it was like a vitamin C pill that they used to give to children. (laughs) in the Barocca. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Barocca, Barocca. yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that would be it. What are you going to stockpile? Oh, I told you. Pasta, I and pasta, pasta and sauce. Pasta and sauce sachets, they're brilliant. Um, pasta and sauce. You, you usually get them... Uh, do you have to... Um, can you put, just pour the water straight into the sachet, or do you have to... You actually <laughs> have to never d- tried that. No. That would um, be... I could try making it directly in the kettle next time. That would be good. Pot noodle, I would I would have said. Mm. Surely beans. Beans, tins of beans, of course. Only the ones with the little sausages in them for me. It's basically back to the 1970s, which neither of you yeah. were around for, when, you know, the only fruit that you saw was basically in a tin fruit salad in a tin tinned mandarin oranges and stuff like that oh, evaporated milk evaporated milk it will be like time travel yeah 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 it's very going exciting. to be very All exciting the opportunities of brexit coming up now but in the end um the food and drink federation want to kind of help this there is a, there is some ways to help prepare apart from the money that the government's throwing at Does it does it move um, to france uh, no, they haven't suggested that strangely, but um, we should make that policy. Or yes. Something. <laughs> um, they want competition law waived um, by the Competition and Markets Authority. Basically, there was a, I can't remember when, but there was a big scandal about all the supermarkets kind price of coordinating their deliveries and this kind of got wrapped up into price fixing, fixing scandals yep. and now they can't they're not allowed to um sort of get together and decide supply chain dynamics yes. together 
um, it all has to be separated off. And they've said, look, if you fine us for this, we're not going to be able to get food to where it's most needed. Um, mm. Which is, you know, just a terrifying idea anyway. The idea that there's going to be places that are food deserts after this. Food so, deserts? Yeah, that's um, that's a cheerful that's good. stockpiling. Report. The only thing, the way that this will get fixed is if... What, what food do we imagine Dominic Cummings eats? Small mice or something like that. Or, <laughs> yeah, but if he can't get his if he can't get his fish fingers, spam in it. I think he's got a constant tin spam. spam on the go. He's very wiry, isn't he? Yeah. For a spam eater. Egg whites. Egg whites. If he can't get his egg whites, then they'll be hell to pay. <laughs> hell to pay. Okay, that was a great ramble through the week's news. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Mia Jankovic and. Um, Jerry, you just stay with me for one second um, because we're going to listen to a, uh, an interview with Clive Lewis now. Uh, just tee up what Clive Lewis is, is going to say. Yeah, so Clive came in and he spoke to me about Brexit, obviously, how Labour has really dealt with it so far, where he thinks Jeremy Corbyn's gone wrong, because you'll remember Clive Lewis was really one of Jeremy's closest yes, allies he to was. begin with. and. That has waned off a bit, so he's talking to me about where he thinks it's gone wrong and um, what Labour can do in the future, and he's got a very interesting anecdote about the one time he's met Boris Johnson. Marvellous. So that is coming up, and then I will be back with the Brexiteer of the Week. Welcome back to the New European Podcast. But right now, I'm joined by Norwich South MP Clive Lewis. Hi, Clive. Hi, Jerry. How are you doing? I'm all right. Just kind of... Coming to the end of my stint before a summer holiday. Yes. I might get a week, unless we're, <laughs> unless we're recalled. So, yeah. You could be recalled. You could be recalled. Are yes. you poised by the phone at any point? I, I wouldn't. Well, I carry a mobile. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, um, <laughs> that phone in your hand. That phone in my hand. I mean, someone I was talking to today said, oh, are you ready for the recall? And I was like, what do you know that I don't? Um, and look, it's a possibility. And I think the kind of the, the slow motion car crash that is Brexit kind of feels like it's speeding up slightly as we get to that end x date of october 31st um do i i suppose i'm probably in a bit of denial to say that i don't think we'll be recalled it's possible though and i think now one of the kind of um kind of the the kind of rules that i've kind of worked by on brexit for some time now is whatever seems impossible now give it a couple of weeks or a couple of months as a deadline looms and it will seem completely and eminently sensible and you'll wonder why you never thought that this would happen before and I think that's where we now are and I think what you're beginning to hear and beginning to see from politicians across the political spectrum from John MacDonald um, from uh, you've got noises being made by the Liberal Democrats the Greens people are beginning to realize that if we want to stop Brexit then there's going to have to be some form of working together far more closely than we are. Now, in a tribal political system, which we have, um, I am someone who believes that it's very limited in what it can achieve. Um, But in a tribal political system, that's very difficult. Um, And it means it goes against every screaming instinct, especially if there's a general election looming, where you look out for your own party political self-interest. But I think now people are beginning to realise that Boris Johnson and the cabinet that he's put around him, uh, driven by dark money by uh, Farage and all those that have been funding them they are intent on making sure that no deal Brexit if necessary happens and I think that's kind of clearing minds galvanizing people to think well we need to step up in an equally effective manner and to date that hasn't happened in part I think because we've had a prime minister in Theresa May um, who was more intent on keeping the Conservative Party together I think Boris Johnson 
uh, is less concerned about that. I think he will drive a coach and horses through the Conservative Party if he can be Prime Minister, if he can leave the European Union uh, and if he can be in power. Um, I don't think it concerns him if 10, 20, 30 of his MPs leave, um, if he can still win. And so that, I think that has changed the dynamic in Parliament and it's made the opposition parties, it's meant we have also, I think, now got to step up our game in response to that. Yeah, lovely. I mean, you mentioned stopping Brexit in there. You are, of course, one of the founders of, and let me get this round the right way, Love Socialism, Hate Brexit. So we've changed our name. Ah, so, love so, so, so Love Socialism, Hate Brexit came about uh, as a way for those of us on the left of the party, uh, centre-left, left of the party, we were very much aware that much of the discourse for um, a public vote and remain had been dominated by what you would call the right or the moderate side of the party. And they had done, uh, I think, a quite remarkable thing. I might not agree with everything they'd done and every tactical strategy they'd used, but they had, they had kept, that, kept that going and they, they deserve credit for that. Um, but what it was also there for was to also acknowledge that there was a part of the left especially around Jeremy Corbyn and his office, who were very much against a public vote. And so what this was, because we've had three years of internal turmoil of coups and so on and so forth, this was about making a space for those of us on the left, the, the broad left, to be able to say, we're not here to try and undermine the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. We're here to stop Brexit and to get a public vote. Um, and... Therefore, and of course, you had the letter, didn't you? You had the letter that you all sent that's in. That's right. Yeah. We sent the letter in and we we established a, a platform for people to speak on. We had a left block at the massive um, anti-Brexit rally. Picture of you with the flair. Picture of me with the flair. That's correct. <laughs> Tempting fate. Um, and... Um, uh, and, yeah, and, and, all those, and, and all those things that we did. So what it was, was about making a space for the left to be able to speak out. And there were so many members of the Labour Party, so many of our supporters and voters who were screaming for the Labour Party to get behind this. Now, understandably, because of the last uh, kind of traumatic three years that we've had as a party, before you even open the, the Pandora's box of Brexit with the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn, it was clear that many people were using defend Jeremy as a kind of mechanism to suppress and shut down any dissent on the party's official line on on seeing through Brexit. Mm -hmm. And obviously, as you well know, I resigned from the shadow cabinet. I refused to sign Article 50 as it had been configured by Theresa May. I could see where it was going to go. I like to think. I think I was right. Um, so we wanted to make clear and to make sure that there was a home for people, Labour supporters, who wanted to remain as part of the European Union, who wanted to campaign for a public vote and for Remain to be on there. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn in there, and, but you were one of his biggest supporters at one point, weren't you? Yeah. What's kind of what's, what's changed? What do you think of his leadership now and how he's how he's been handling Brexit so far? Well, the idea of someone as leader is is often very different to the reality. And you can say that about Margaret Thatcher. Yep. I mean, she was ousted. Yep. Um, Theresa May. Yes, well. <laughs> uh, and maybe Boris Johnson eventually. <laughs> I mean, it, it, but it, it, you know, it, it happens throughout history. Look, I, I think you need to be really clear here. Um, I'm, I'm extremely supportive of the policy platform of our party. Yep. Uh, when I came in back in 2015, I got down to Parliament. I was being told by you know, the leadership of the party as it was then, uh, that we had to vote for Tory welfare reform, for two-child policy. There was a move, uh, there was going to be a move to set off housing association homes to the private sector. We were told that we, whilst we might not be supporting that, we might not be opposing it that hard. No, so there was, there was so many things that were coming back out. And all the, the reason given was Ed Miliband was too left-wing. 
Um, and therefore, the party has overwhelmingly voted to support um, David Cameron and the Conservative Party. Therefore, uh, as such, we must now move to the right as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I thought to hell with that. That's not mm -hmm. what I came into politics for. And I don't think that's where the vast majority of the British people were. There were lots of reasons for Ed Miliband's failure in 2015. I think being left too left wing, whatever that means, <laughs> wasn't one of them. Um, was it the bacon so, sandwich? I don't, well, you know, you know, I don't think it was the bacon ah, sandwich. No. But, you know, you, you mentioned something really interesting, which is no matter who our Labour leader is, they are going to come under the kind of attack a Conservative leader will never face. Mm -hmm. And Conservative leaders are face attack, but yeah. it's not on the same scale for, this, uh, for, the, for the sheer volume and weight of those attacks from the establishment of media. And the, the more uh, so-called left-wing you are, and by that I mean challenging the current economic orthodoxy, we have one of the most unequal societies and economies in the Western world after the US, mm -hmm. If you're going to challenge that, you're going to come up against powerful vested interests, newspaper owners, magnates, uh, the people who now own uh, vast waves of the British economy and are extremely wealthy. They are going to make sure that every vehicle, every mechanism they have to undermine that leader is going to happen. And that has definitely happened to Jeremy Corbyn. However, your job is to minimise the sticks that you hand to your opponents to beat mm -hmm. them with. And, and that sometimes has been a disappointment, if I'm honest. Yeah. Um, but, you know, look, people are human. We're under intense pressure. On the issue of Brexit, I understand why the Labour Party and why Jeremy has tried to hold the party together. The, the problem is, though, the kind of the middle ground on Brexit, which I think many people in Norwich South, when I canvassed them after the referendum result, did want a compromise. But the extreme um, way in which Theresa May and the Conservative Party approached Brexit, this hard Brexit calling an unnecessary election to, to therefore drive through something even harder with a larger majority... Um, basically polarised people and it turned the middle ground into a no man's land and you can't survive in a no man's land you can at best take into a, you know, a foxhole um, and now unfortunately the vast majority of the British public and the British um, political institutions political parties are in the trenches on either side and yeah. you, you sit in the middle you're going to get shot to bits so you need to pick a side and get into those trenches <laughs> I know what side I want to be on um, so I think it, but back, you know, to go back to the, the conversation we're having about 2015, when I got down there, you know, there was no one that was speaking out against austerity except Jeremy Corbyn. You know, Liz Kendall wasn't, Yvette Cooper wasn't, um, Andy Burnham wasn't. Mm -hmm. There was no one talking about a bigger vision, about, you know, re, not people talk about renationalizing the economy. I prefer to talk about redemocratizing the economy. Mm -hmm. You know, we were in the 1970s. For whatever people think of the 1970s, you know, people could afford to own a home. Uh, they could afford, they had a council house. Yep. You had record low levels of, of homelessness. We had, you know, the National Health Service, a welfare state, a safety net. We don't have a welfare state safety net anymore. Mm -hmm. It's a punitive a machine which basically penalizes people for losing their jobs or for going into mental health or having a hard time you know so i think actually back in 2015 the policy offer that jeremy was offering was one that not just me but the overwhelming majority of the labor membership wanted and they did yeah. he won by 60 percent then he had to fight another leadership election within a year and he won by an even bigger margin on an even more radical policy platform mm -hmm. um so i think the policy uh, platform that Jeremy and John and the leadership have established about putting climate change and the ecology at the heart of our economic system, which is what I'm working on, about democratising the economy, about challenging the 1%, about smashing tax avoidance. I think all of these things are things that people know that Brexit is a function of a broken political and economic system. Sure. The one bit that we haven't really done, I think, in enough depth 
is the constitutional point mm -hmm. and the fact that we you know we have an anachronistic um, uh, political system constitution we don't even have a written mm -hmm. constitution and I think now more than ever we need to understand that Brexit is a function not just of a broken economy that is unfair and leaves people left leave those many people left behind but it's also a function of a broken political system and i think that constitutional side is something that we need to fix really quickly especially as we as we move into what could be a quite a turbulent period politically and economically with issues on the climate with migration uh with the rise of the strong men in america in turkey in hungary we need to get our act together and quickly because i think our democracy is very fragile we have to strengthen it we have to make it like our economy more resilient and if we don't do that, we're going to have problems. We need to do it quick. Mm -hmm. and staying in Europe is going to make that job a lot easier. Yeah, but so what's happened since? If all those policies were so popular, there are people now who do feel let down by Labour over Brexit, over things like anti-Semitism. What's, what's gone on in the party and the leadership since? Um, I think some people, some, people, um, some people are cut out for leadership. Other people are cut out for being in opposition sure. and being against the system. Challenging. Challenging the system. Um, now, I think, you know, time will tell which side of the fence Jeremy came down on. I think some people have already made their minds up. Um, you know, being in power uh, has definitely changed the view of people of not just Jeremy, but of John McDonnell. For mm -hmm. example, John McDonnell, I think now is widely seen as, you know, the, the best chance that we've never yet had. Mm -hmm. um, and also someone that people feel is pragmatic, resilient and able to cut through and do what needs to be done. He seems like a natural leader. Now, you can have um, political teams where you have different qualities, yeah. uh, where you have, you know, you had Gordon Brown and uh, Tony Blair. Yep. Now, they may not always have seen eye to eye, but they were a double act yeah. and they were able to achieve a lot of success, relatively speaking, in those 30, in the years that they were were in power between 97 and, and 2010. Um, I think you could say the same for Jeremy and John. They both had different skills, different qualities. There are definitely some things that Jeremy has, which John could never have hoped to have achieved to won the leadership twice. So, you know, Jeremy is someone who people felt was authentic, that what he said he meant. And you can't buy that for love of money in politics. Um, I think, unfortunately, any no plan survives contact with the enemy, as we used to say in the army. And I think, ultimately, whatever you think of a leader, once that actually hits the reality of the political buffers, the reality of what's happening now, sometimes, you know, they don't always live up to that. Um, and you know what? The, I, I've been in politics now three and a half years. You know, I know people who've been around it for 20, and they all, they'll say to me, you've experienced more in three and a half years than I almost have in 20. This has been one of the most turbulent periods in living memory. Um, it's so crazy times. It, it is crazy times. And I think it's crazy in part because, you know, every 40 years or so, it seems, you know, 1945, 1979, we're now due another one. There does seem to be this kind of massive shift where whether it's whether it's technology, the economy, society, things come into play, which mean that things begin to change quite rapidly. Um, I think we're at a fork in the road now. Um, I think we have a choice between going down quite a dark dystopian us trumpian trade deal future uh, and moving into the orbit and sphere ever greater sphere of influence of america and i'm not sure looking over america that's something i particularly want mm, yeah. or we can stay in europe which has its problems where i think culturally i am closer as a european it's mm -hmm. geographically and economically far closer an entity we've helped shape it and we can continue to shape it if we stay in there and i think we can do good and we can make europe a beacon and a bastion for the kind of global world order we all want to see 
Europe isn't there yet, and I'm one of those people on the left who don't want, don't see um, supporting or voting against Brexit and supporting Remain as like some way of resetting the clock to pre-2008. No. I see it in a very different way. I see if we go back in, if we stay in Europe, we're going to transform it across Europe. People say that's impossible. Well, we might as well just go home and give up on the world. You know, I didn't come into politics to do that, and I know many other people at home haven't given up on Europe. So we can change it if we want. Yeah, absolutely. So what... What do you think is going to happen on October 31st? So with all that in mind, it, you know, that's that's great kind of what you want to happen. But what do you think in reality will really happen on the 31st? I think some of it depends. In, I think some of it depends on how much Boris Johnson and the cabal around him and the powerful vested interests supporting him think they can get away with. Sure. If they think that they can short circuit Parliament, if they think that they can roll us out uh, on a no deal by default on October 31st without Parliament having a real say and I think they will try yeah. they will test um, then they will do it mm-hmm. and they, there's no two ways about it but if they understand that people at home are no longer just spectators in their own democracy that they will come out they will march if necessary they will um, vote tactically or whatever it takes to stop him I think then that they will understand that they've bitten off more than they can chew they're kind of almost I think expecting a level of of of, uh, of passiveness and of uh, tiredness of Brexit to mm-hmm. be able to kind of people say Do you know what I want it over stop and I think that's really really important that people understand as tired as you are of Brexit now you will wish that you had made a stand and a fight on this issue back going. when you had a chance uh, than just let it go and and end up where we possibly could so I think much of it is down to how hard Brexit uh, how hard Parliament um, is prepared to tell him that they will not um, be pushed around, that they will not be short-circuited uh, and gone around. I think that they will be looking very clearly at the mood of mm-hmm. Parliament and the mood of the British public. And I think we have to make it really clear that we won't take that crap. Yeah, no, Parliament has made some pretty kind of radical moves in the last year, three years, really, to you know use the mechanisms that are available to you guys to frustrate the process yes. you know in in wh- whether you think that's good or bad obviously our listeners think that's a good thing yeah. um what what do you see coming up do you see that parliament will stamp its feet and say look you can't bypass us here we're the elected officials we, we don't i think i i think i stand by my first statement which is they will be listening and watching to yeah. look and see yes there may be procedural moves that they can make as we can which can oust this this way or oust that or go around that way but ultimately, they will be looking at the mood music of Parliament and the British public to see what they can get away with. And we have to be quite resolute in that we won't accept it. But I think one of the things that I think people will increasingly have begun to understand about how Parliament works, and I certainly have, is that we don't have a written constitution as mm, such. Yeah. We have a series of, um, of political traditions um, which are then kind of recorded down put on paper and then basically you know you'll see different people standing up going oh but you'll understand so that kind of it's almost like case law but in, in politics um we don't have a written constitution which means that there's a quite a bit of flexibility interpretation that's why the speaker has acquired such stature in the house because in many ways he is championing the, the parliamentary component of our democracy against the executive and i would say that our constitution as it is, unwritten as it is, 
probably hands more power over to the executive than many other countries. Now, mm -hmm. some people would say that's rubbish. You look at the you look at the president of the United States. You look at the French president. I would say no. Actually, not ha by not having a, a combination of not having a written constitution and having a, such a powerful executive means that Parliament has really had to step up to to kind of cut short that that democratic deficit in many ways because that has happened because of that referendum that took place which in so many ways that plebiscite has short-circuited our democracy and that means that parliament now is having to stand up against um the executive and that means i think you can see what it means it means that we end up going around in circles and there's no doesn't feel to be any kind of definitive way that we can end what's going on i think the end game is now happening because that deadline of october the 31st seems so permanent and that's forcing people and forcing minds to kind of get their heads around what it is they need to do to end this mm -hmm. will that end game be a general election do you think sometime soon um i think it's highly likely i yeah. can't see it. boris has gone for uh, i think the i think the polite expression is shit or bust hasn't he in terms of his <laughs> cabinet um you know he doesn't seem to have made many friends i think he's known that this was a kind of short burn cabinet that he's put in place i would never call <laughs> pretty patel a safe pair of hands you don't never you wouldn't really expect it to hang around for five years especially at the home office so it's it's kind of been designed for one thing and i think that's to win uh, either a general election to get this no deal through one of those either or both of yeah. those things um and that means he's alienated some more moderate elements of his party so i think almost inevitably whatever happens on brexit there's going to have to be a general election in the near term i can't see that not happening um and i think a general election will be good i think it will mean that political parties have to get their heads together those of us that want to stop brexit have to start thinking about how we work together you know what maybe 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 we'll learn a thing or two maybe we'll think actually there's a lot more we have in common than indifference um so when it comes to fighting things like climate change and ecological destruction and the big issues that face us as a society um maybe it'll teach us a few lessons in that process and so maybe there's a good ending to this you know there's a, a kind of silver lining to this brexit cloud um but why you know I, one of the things that i kind of do often think about is the fact that our democracy is so delicate and fragile and I do think that what we've seen over the past 40 years, I'm a big avid fan of history mm -hmm. and the Roman Empire in particular. I've read a lot. And, you know, some people, I think, kind of refer to Trump and people like him as, as new Caesars yes. that will smash democracy. <laughs> I think they're more likely to be kind of people like Crassus yep. or Sulla, if you know your Roman history. And these were the kind of the pre-dictators, the ones that came before and weakened the foundations and institutions of the, of the Republic in Rome mm -hmm. or, or democracy here, which meant that those that came later were able to finish it off far easier. And I think that's possibly where we are now and where we're potentially heading. And, you know, people always think of coups as, you know, tanks on the lawn and uh, some mustachioed gentleman in a green olive uniform telling you that democracy is over. Actually, there are a multitude of ways through which democracy can end or be undermined. And I think we're seeing some of them now in the way that, this conservative government the one of Theresa may and the one that boris johnson now represents are trying to do uh, as an executive with vast vested interests and wealth uh, behind them i think there is a, a coup in, in effect taking place before our very eyes mm. and it's up to us to kind of make sure that it doesn't happen yeah yeah, yeah. we spoke about boris johnson quite a lot there as a as a leader as his cabinet on his brexit plans have you met him um yes i have but not in a way you think <laughs> when i first became an mp and boris uh, it's supposed to be in the first year or so. Boris came in in a by-election, I think. Sure. I can't, I, I, he came, anyway. He, and I remember there was all the, 
uh, the kind of kerfuffle about Boris coming in. And I was walking through the members' cloakroom. And as I was walking through, I saw him. He was obviously writing a speech. And he's, yeah, he's blonde, ruffled hair. And he had his hand around his work like he didn't want anyone to copy it. <laughs> like he's taking an exam. And it is like a very much like a hog... Yeah, it was. Yeah. And it is very much like a public school Hogwarts cloakroom there with like little toy swords hanging <laughs> up. And... and um, he was there and he was writing this speech he was writing a speech out by hand like that and I stood there for a second and watched and I said uh, what does that say are, they, are you doing your lines I must not be naughty because I think he just recently said something which uh, brought great embarrassment surely no um, so you know I, it looked like he was doing he'd been told to go and do lines uh, he kind of looked up grinned uh, wolfishly thought of something to say but didn't and then went back down to writing his speech um so that's the only real time I've interacted with him, but it was it was a monologue on my part. It yeah. Was a real interaction. What do you kind of you know? You say you've only met him once, so it might be a difficult question. But aside from him as a leader, what do you think of him as a person? I mean, whatever you think of him, he's clearly a very intelligent man. Yes, um, I think he has a great sense of entitlement. Mm-hmm. I think that's born from our public school system, yeah. uh, private privately educated school children from some of the, the kind of most expensive public schools um someone was saying to me the other day you know it's quite amazing to hear um uh, children from some of some of the most prestigious private schools and, and some of your listeners can tell me if i'm wrong i'm only going by what i've heard because i've never been to private school but they kind of at a kind of age 16 17 roughly decide what they want to be yeah i'm going to be prime minister i'm going to be chief executive of i'm going to be newspaper editor uh, yes <laughs> and uh, indeed and uh, and then proceed to do that through their social networks contacts and yeah and so on and so forth so i think there's definitely a sense of entitlement there with boris um some people say there's nothing wrong with that fair enough he's there i think he is intelligent i think he's ruthless yeah i think he knows what he wants i think he wants a place in history mm-hmm. uh, i also think that he knows which side his bread is buttered on he knows who his friends are where they are he knows who his allies are, and he is unashamedly out um, to support the interest of what I would call his class. Um, and it's a very, very narrow grouping, uh, one that in many ways is, uh, I, I think, a kind of increasingly what you would call a rentier class. They're kind of extract, economically extractive. So they, they're speculative. They make their money through acquisition, through financial speculation, through rent-seeking. Um, they don't actually contribute very much to the productive economy. And so that's why you're now finding the Conservative Party, led by Boris Johnson and some of the more hard extreme elements of that party, going to log- going, going up against the CBI. Because the, Con- the Confederation of British Industry, that's the productive part of the economy, this isn't going to work so well for them. They can see that no deal. And yeah. yet that's what he's about, because I think they understand in a, a more speculative economic situation, they will do very well from that. Some of them already are. So I think you're already seeing interests within capital beginning to split. Um, I think the future is the productive economy. I don't think this speculative economy is where we can have a sustainable global economy. I think it ultimately, I think it ultimately won't work. Um, it won't work for the vast majority of people on this planet. So yeah, I think he's someone who knows very much where he's going, very much what he wants. Um, is on a mission to achieve that, and thinks that you know history will record him as someone who who did right by not just his class but this country but i i don't agree with with his analysis obviously and, and nor do many people in this country that's the future of brexit sorted the future of boris my last question for you Glove is what's the future for labor um i think the labor party has a very strong 
future. Um, I think it depends on what it does in uh, the next couple of weeks and months. Mm-hmm. Um, as for any political party, uh, I think it has to get that right. I think I don't have to explain what I think right is. But I think it has to get that right uh, in terms of playing its part in stopping Brexit. I think it's quite clear if no deal Brexit happens. I'm afraid to say that if it happened tomorrow, Labour would get its fair share of the blame for that. I think that would be unfair, but it would happen electorally. I think there would be I think we would be punished. I think there needs to be a realignment in British politics. I think that we need to ensure that those who I think the big divide in British politics after Brexit will be those who understand how serious the ecological and climate crisis is. I think that's a big looming cloud on the horizon. In fact, it's not on the horizon, it's here. Um, and ultimately, that will make Brexit look like a, you know, a sideshow. And I think ultimately, those who are prepared to make the radical economic changes to show leadership on that, um, to make our fair, fair society and economy fairer, uh, more equitable, more sustainable, I think that will become increasingly the dividing line within British politics. I think the Labour Party can stay together in that scenario. I think we can bring trade unions along with us. I think we can bring those parts of the Labour movement um, who are very much attached to unsustainable economic activities through having a just transition. Um, But I think the potential for Labour, given where we can see the instability in the global economy now is, I think there's a big role for social democratic parties to play in being able to navigate our way through this, to to reform capitalism, uh, to implement emergency socialism, if necessary. And I use that term. um, I use that term. I don't use it sparingly. I use it um, with great care because I understand the word socialism uh, concerns some people. But as I said at a discussion the other day, I said, who here here thinks socialism is a good idea? And about out of a crowd of 200, about 10 hands went up. I said, well, who here thinks that the NHS is a good idea? Most of the hands went up. I said, well, the NHS is the closest thing we've had in this country to socialism. It's not based on your ability to pay on profit. It's based on your need. And what we need to see more of is uh, an economy um, and a society that is based on putting people and planet first. Uh, If we can do that for our health, we can do that for our ecology. Um, And if we don't, then the the consequence will be quite dire. So that's what I mean by emergency socialism, beginning to recalibrate our economy to make sure it works in the interests of everyone and not just a few, which I think it has been for the past 40 or 50 years. And we're now reaching the limits of that. Thanks so much for coming on the European Podcast Clive. Clive Lewis and Jerry Scott there. Uh, and that brings us on to the Brexiteers of the week. Uh, first of all, Crispin Odie, uh, donor to Boris Johnson, a friend of Jacob Rees-Mogg. Crispin Odie continues to make a killing out of Brexit going badly for British businesses. The Sunday Times has revealed that Odie, who made £220 million betting on the pound tanking after the 2016 referendum, has taken out £299 million in short positions on 16 leading UK companies. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's effectively gambling that their share prices will fall along with the pound as the threat of no deal looms. Very patriotic. The hedge fund multimillionaire donated £10,000 to Boris Johnson in June, but then he showed his belief in Boris's Midas touch on the day that he became Prime Minister by increasing his short position against High Street lender Metro Bank to £17.6 million. Uh, Crispin Odie there, a friend uh, of Boris, a friend of Jacob Rees-Mogg, and uh, 
possibly not a friend of British business, but certainly a friend of Brexit. Uh, James Cleverly, he's inaptly named, isn't he? The Tory chairman is embracing his party's new position as the go-to place for both uh, Brexit and deceit. told Radio 4's Today programme that the EU membership meant the UK had been precluded for decades from having free ports. Then a brief fact check soon revealed that not only does the EU allow free ports, but the UK had them until 2012 when they were shut down uh, by the government. I I wonder who remembers who was in power in in 2012, which party. Uh, Cleverly then went on to record a video marking the anniversary of the act which abolished slavery in Britain. He credited this largely to a long campaign by, and I'm quoting him here, a Tory MP from Yorkshire, William Wilberforce. And naturally, William Wilberforce turns out not to have been a Tory at all. He was fiercely independent. Has James Cleverly never heard of Googling? Ian Duncan Smith now, and he said last week in the increasingly wackadoo Daily Telegraph, the Reformation was the making of modern Britain, and Brexit is a similar opportunity. Well, so does that mean we can look forward to two centuries of war in Britain and the persecution and the execution of Catholics? of whom Ian Duncan Smith happens to be one. Simon Sharma called Duncan Smith a dunce, but then Simon Sharma's a well-regarded historian, so what does he know about it? Experts everywhere. Meanwhile, IDS has branded Remainers as conniving so-and-sos for threatening to form an alternative government if Boris Johnson loses a vote of no confidence. Does this mean that when the Conservatives got together with the Lib Dems and the DUP to stay in government, they were just conniving so-and-sos as well? Oh, God, I, I can't keep up with all of these contradictions. But the Brexiteer of the week, and if you got the new European print edition this week, you can play a special hangman game with her. It's string them up pretty Patel. The hopelessly overpromoted Home Secretary has begun her reign of terror by wishing that offenders literally feel terror at the thought of committing offences. Now, is it too much to hope that Pretty Patel will literally feel shame at some point too? She denied last week ever supporting the death penalty, but then we saw that in 2016 she told the Mail on Sunday, yes, I do support capital punishment. And then we saw video of her on Question Time in 2011 saying, yes, I would actually support the reintroduction of capital punishment. And Pretty Patel also says that immigrants can now only come into Britain only if they speak English. And let's hope the Spanish and the French don't develop a similarly enlightened view of our expats, who of course all speak in the native tongue. So Pretty Patel is the Brexiteer of the week. Now, if you want to help us uh, get Richard Porritt back from his holidays, then there are some simple things that you can do. First, leave a wonderful review for the New European Podcast on your podcatcher of choice. You can go to Facebook, you can like the New European page, and you can join our Facebook readers group. Uh, or you can go to Twitter, you can follow me at Sanglesey, S-A-N-G-L-E-S-E-Y. But more usefully, you can follow the New European at the New European. Here you go.
Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History? Well, on Monday, it's the anniversary of kids' classic, The Very Hungry Caterpillar. On Tuesday, how Rockford became the cheese of kings. On Wednesday, we meet the Jobs and Wozniak of the 1800s. On Thursday, the history of the YMCA, from the city of London to the village people. And on Friday, the edgy musical that made Greece the word. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes each weekday, wherever you get your podcasts.